This WBEZ podcast is supported by the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. Suicide is a topic that hides in the shadows. It's time we talk away the dark, learn how to spot the warning signs for suicide, and how you can have an open, caring, real conversation to help save lives. Visit the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention to watch the new short film and learn more at AFSP.org slash talkawaythedark. This WBEZ podcast is supported by Ravinia, with over 100 concerts under the stars this summer, including Daryl Hall and Elvis Costello, Nora Jones with special guest Mavis Staples, the Beach Boys with special guest John Stamos, Shaggy and TLC, Jason Isbell and the 400 Unit, the Chicago Symphony Orchestra, and more. Their 30-acre park is nestled in a gently wooded area. Bring your own picnic or eat at one of the park restaurants. Tickets available now only at ravinia.org. When were the... What school's... The... Who decides what the next... Where's that story? Why they keep the loop? What is this? It's Curious City. Where WBEZ answers your questions... About Chicago, the region, and its people. So we'll go out to the balconies. Whoa. Yeah, it's quite a view. All right, this is Logan Jaffe. I'm Curious City's multimedia producer. This is Jason Nargis. I'm a special collections librarian at Northwestern University, and I'm part of the Chicago Collections Consortium. So we're on the 42nd floor of the Intercontinental Hotel, which is that one uh, on North Michigan Avenue with that giant gold uh, kind of onion-shaped dome at the top. And we have teamed up to answer a fascinating question from this guy right next to me, Jeff with one F. Right. <laughs> what was your question? Uh, was Zeppelin or dirigible travel ever very popular in Chicago? And were there any buildings outfitted for them? And if so, are there any remains? So, we've got some news for you, Jeff. Unfortunately, no airship ever docked to any building in the entire country. Not even the New York ones? Uh, no. Not in terms of passenger travel. Maybe one time there was an airship that tied off to a building in New York and delivered a load of newspapers, but that's the extent of it, as far as we can tell. Well, that's disappointing. <laughs> Sorry, but, but there is a reason why we're here, which is at the back of that gold dome, there is a large smokestack-looking structure, which was supposedly built with the intention of docking dirigibles even though it never did. Well, that's interesting. It is interesting. This little smokestack-looking thing on top of the Intercontinental Hotel is a holdover from a time when Chicago dreamed of making it big in new air travel tech, like Zeppelins. So Jeff's question is an opportunity to tell a story about why our city of progress let this once-futuristic technology slip away. So let's start at the beginning in the late 1920s. People were very enthusiastic about modernity. Uh, things were, were new. Technology was expanding. This is Dan Grossman, airship historian. He says in 1928, for the first time ever, a passenger airship flies across the Atlantic Ocean and... People are obsessed with this new possibility of flying places. This was something that people in the 1930s mostly had not experienced. This is how people are going to travel. This is a sign that society and technology is moving forward. The captain of that first transatlantic flight was Hugo Eckner, and the airship was the Graf Zeppelin of the Zeppelin Company in Germany. Real quick terminology, Zeppelins are a brand of airships, and any steerable airship is called a dirigible. 
Anyway, enthusiasm for these things was intense. There were diners made in the shape of airships. There's women wearing Zeppelin dresses and Zeppelin hats. And in 1929, a year after the first transatlantic flight, Eckner capitalizes on the good press and sets out on another longer voyage. Hugo Eckner flies around the world. You have an airship flying around the entire globe. And he makes a point of flying over Chicago. And the people in Chicago just went mad. They went crazy, as people all over the world did. There's lots of photos from this visit. One photo shows the Graf Zeppelin drifting over Buckingham Fountain and through Grant Park. Picnic blankets are strewn about, but no one is sitting on them because everyone's up on their feet, pointing and waving. But as Eckner and his Zeppelin cross the Chicago skyline, one photo in particular stands out. I'm just going to pull it up right here. We show it to Jeff, our questioner. Oh, wow. It's a photo of where we are right now, the top of the Intercontinental Hotel, the Medina Athletic Club at the time. From the angle the photo's taken, the nose of the airship appears just inches away from the old mast, as if it's about to tie off. And the caption reads, Count Dr. Eckner visits our club by air. Curious, considering it never happened. But Jeff, our questioner, entertains the idea. If it were to actually dock up there, I don't see where they have tie-offs. I'm just trying to imagine the stairs or whatever they came out of the ship. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe they got close and they said, let's not attempt it. Right, right. Let's let's, (laughs) Let's let's go find a big flat field somewhere. (laughs) Go land on the grass. (laughs) Jason and Jeff are actually on to something. Oh, gosh. Uh, Docking a large, rigid airship on the top of the building is one of the worst ideas anyone could ever come up with, which is why it was never done. It's crazy if you think about it. A ship could be 800 feet long, and mooring mass on buildings only had one tie-off point, which meant the wind could still spin the ship 360 degrees around and just maybe behead the Tribune Tower next door. And another thing. Zeppelins usually landed in big open fields, and passengers would step onto platforms just a few feet off steady ground. But a Zeppelin on a building? Can you imagine what it would have been like as a passenger to get on and off an airship hundreds of feet over the city streets? It would have been terrifying. You would have been, had trouble talking people into doing that. So it seems the Intercontinental Mast wasn't built with any practicality or business sense in mind. So what's with that phony mast? Often they were just pure publicity stunts, nothing more than that. You build a new hotel, you need PR, you need publicity, you need people talking about your hotel, you build a Zeppelin mask. You know, it got attention. Back at the top of the Intercontinental, we break the news to Jeff. It seems like Chicago is kind of uh, dirigible posers. <laughs> and, uh, and what we're looking at, this big, giant gold dome with this smokestack-looking thing, is a testament to that. <laughs> Chicago's always trying, <laughs> bragging about one thing, and it's not really all that big a deal. Yeah, we're, we're doing it, and by gosh, come look at us. And Chicago did have a lot of stuff worth looking at in the early 30s. We were the nation's rail hub, meatpacking hub, shipping hub. But when it came to airship travel, the best we could do is stick up a pole. We simply didn't invest in Zeppelin infrastructure that had a chance of working, like a big open field and crews of hundreds to dock airships. Lakehurst, New Jersey, south of New York, had that. So why Lakehurst and not us? Zeppelins are great for long overwater transportation, in the same way that ocean liners were. So going between the coast of the United States and the coast of Europe is perfect for an airship. And Chicago was in the middle of the country, not a great place for an airship terminal. 
but Chicagoans had other transportation options. The connections between large business and population centers like Chicago and New York were so well served by railroads and by fixed-wing airliners. It didn't make any sense. There was no need to have Zeppelin operations in Chicago. That didn't stop the city from inviting Eckner and his Graf Zeppelin back in 1933 for the Century of Progress World's Fair. But this time when Eckner came, the world was a very different place. When Graf Zeppelin visited Chicago in 1929, it was this international symbol of progress and peace and international cooperation. Four years later, the Zeppelin flew over here with giant swastikas on its tail. You see, part of the Nazis' rise to power in Germany was a policy called Gleichschaltung, where every element of society had to promote the party's totalitarian ideals. So everything got a swastika. And Chicago was really maybe one of the best examples of the tension represented by the Nazification of the Zeppelins. And it was partly because of the population in Chicago. At the time, Chicago had a huge Jewish population and was home to hundreds of thousands of German Americans. Many felt embarrassed and angry about Nazi militarism and jingoism in their homeland. And Hugo Eckner, who wanted nothing to do with Nazis, tried to accommodate by keeping the side of the ship with the regular German flag on it facing towards the city. And so he deliberately went out of his way, took a longer route, and flew a giant clockwise circle around the city so people in Chicago would not see the swastikas. He knew that that's how sensitive the topic was, and he didn't want to see his baby politicized, but it was out of his hands. You just can't hide a huge flying swastika. In Chicago, Eckner and the Graf Zeppelin were the target of bomb threats, protests, boycotts. The message was clear. You and your swastikas are not welcome here. And Grossman says that attitude might have killed what was left of Chicago's dream of becoming an airship hub. Clearly, by 1933... Nobody in a position to matter was still thinking about Chicago as an airship terminal. It made no sense. The airship terminal was clearly going to be Lakehurst, New Jersey, and it was. But just a couple years later, in 1937, Lakehurst, the nation's airship hub, also became the site of the nation's greatest airship disaster, the Hindenburg. It's a terrific crash, ladies and gentlemen. The smoke and the flames now, and the famous crashing to the ground, not quite to the morning mass. All the humanity and all the passengers screaming around. 35 people died, and the disaster marked the end of the passenger airship era. Even the Graf Zeppelin was retired after the incident. Maybe it's a good thing Chicago hadn't set itself up as a Zeppelin hub. But it was set up for something else. You see, during the airship craze, Chicago was one of the leading cities quietly investing in domestic airplanes. And maybe we had bet on the right horse all along. In the 1920s, the Zeppelin was the only way to travel quickly between continents. By the 1930s, there were airplanes that could do that. So... People just didn't need Zeppelins anymore. Today, the city we live in has one of the nation's earliest airports, Midway, and also one of the nation's busiest airports, O'Hare. But while Chicago's skies are constantly crisscrossed with planes flying faster and higher than any airships ever could, Grossman says it's hard not to daydream about what we abandoned. I can only imagine how magical it must have been to be a passenger in Hindenburg or Graf Zeppelin and you see the cliffs of an approaching coast, or you see an iceberg floating, or you're floating a few hundred feet over the, a cathedral in Germany or France. You see cities from only a couple hundred feet in the air. You can see people. You wave at people. It must have been a truly magical experience to be in one of them. 
No wonder people were so obsessed with the things. And back on the roof of the Intercontinental, gazing up at this big gold dome and this shell of a supposed mast, however impractical. You really wanted dirigible to be able to land here. <laughs> yes, you do. Can you imagine uh, airships being docked all these? <laughs> Even today, that would look great. Reporting for this story came from me, Jason Nargis. And me, Logan Jaffe. This story is part of a collaboration between Curious City and Chicago Collections, which is this partnership of local archives, museums, and libraries with an online portal, which I really like, where you can search primary source material on Chicago area history all in one place. Visit explorechicagocollections.org to see for yourself. More about Chicago's airship history at wbez.org slash curiouscity. Support for Curious City comes from the Doris and Howard Conant Fund for Journalism. Curious City Podcast is supported by Goose Island Beer Company. Since 1988, Goose Island has been inspired by Chicago's constantly evolving culture to create many award-winning beers, including Bourbon County brand Stout, Goose IPA, and Four Star Pills. More at gooseisland.com. We don't need to be the only beer you drink. We just want to be the best beer you drink. Next time on Curious City. Soliciting and gambling are prohibited on CTA vehicles. That warning might seem odd if you've never seen a card game on your trip, but this fella says it happens and hopes you don't fall into the same trap he did. Sitting back, I'm watching the guy do the three-card Molly routine, and I'm saying to myself, I got him, I got him, and he got me. (laughs) That's next time on WBZ's Curious City. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Thanks for listening to the news live on WBEZ and NPR. The WBEZ stream sounds great in the kitchen on your smart speaker and anywhere on the WBEZ app. Listen every day.